And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and this week we're continuing our Women's World Cup previews. The tournament kicks off in 10 days. We've still got a lot of researching and previewing to do. We did groups A, B, and C last week. My math tells me A, B, C, D. D. Uh, we're on to group D. We're discussing our respective team's nickname, their official nickname, our nickname for them, their story so far, their coach and tactics, key players, and a very specific prediction. Maybe some other stuff in there as well. I'll be talking about Denmark today. They are the red and white. Graham Ruthven, which team will you be previewing? What's their official nickname? So I will be previewing China. Before I get going with this preview, I feel like I have to acknowledge how it's some kind of sick joke that the guy on this podcast who struggles the most with pronunciations <laughs> has been given China to preview for this tournament. So this is my preemptive apology to any Mandarin speakers listening to this. Blame it on my ed- British education. I am doing my best. I will be pre- previewing China. Their official nickname is Quing Chong Mu, which translates as the Steel Roses. Not the Stone Roses, the Steel Roses, different band. I tried to find the origin of that nickname. All I could find was something on the Chinese FA site that says they're called the Steel Roses because of the unity, cooperation, and fighting spirit of the team. So that doesn't really there help at all. Uh, all I can suggest <laughs> is that roses are big in Chinese culture, and so there you go. I was so excited for this episode already. Graham previewing China is just an added perk, but I appreciate the the low bar establishment early on in the episode. Graham, uh, Joe Lowry, who are you going to be talking about? What's their nickname and how are you feeling about your pronunciation skills? Um, so I have Haiti and I'm very excited about Haiti. I am less excited about my ability to pronounce things correctly uh-huh. in French, but... Graham has taken like all of that goodwill from listeners already. <laughs> and so there's nothing left over for me. So I've got to be on my A game. I, I will do my best. But the nickname for Haiti, Les Grenadiers, which means the Grenaders or the Soldiers, because military. That's what I've got on Haiti so far. Looking forward to more. All right. Uh, rounding out the crew today is not Ryan Bailey, who may or may not be marooned on an island somewhere off the coast of England. <laughs> so instead, we're joined by Mr. David Gass. David, glad you are not stranded in some sad, desolate landscape like, say, Long Island. Thank you for being here today. Who have you got? So I also struggle with pronunciations. I just mm-hmm. want to start that before I go into So I am doing England, I mm-hmm. think is how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And I believe England, the team is called actually. the Unnecessaries. Did I get that right? Is that how you pronounce it? The, the trace lineages. Um, they are called the lionesses, and I think you can all guess why. The men's side is the three lions, I believe. Yeah. Um, and the women's side is the lionesses. Every time I looked it up, it just said because. Pretty much is the reason it. Because. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I remember a game I played in high school once where the other team deliberately mispronounced every single person's name on the team That's like cool. before like the game that. kicked off. Yeah. Uh, Goss, I would really enjoy if you did that for England just to annoy Ryan Bailey, who is not with us, but will be listening. If you want to go ahead and mispronounce every single player's name and the country as well as we go through this, I'd really appreciate it. I just love when British people are like, oh, can you say Leicester correctly? And it's like, I live yeah. near Ronkonkoma. Get out of my face. I do not care. <laughs> Lachester. Ted Lasso yeah, taught me. That's exactly. how you say it with the Southern accent as well. All right. Well, we've got our assignments down. I'll kick us off with Denmark. As I said, they're the red and white, but I am calling them the Lipizzaners. Uh, I asked my, all of my co-hosts before we started recording if they had seen Crimson Tide, and only David Goss vaguely has, so this is probably not going to land for them. Uh, I am thinking about watching that movie for the 12th time since it is streaming. Uh, but in that movie, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman have a debate about the coloring of the Lipizzaner stallions. Uh, are they born white and turn black, or are they born black and turn white? I think Wikipedia informs me that they are uh, black or bay and get progressively lighter over time. The reason why I'm calling uh, Denmark this is because I cannot remember a World Cup on the men's or women's side that Denmark participated in where they were not the dark horse team that was going to make a run. And I'm not going to call Denmark this because I think they are a legitimate team that should make a run. Uh, and it would not be that surprising to see them do so. Uh, so they're a full grown horse that can do amazing things, run a lot and fly through the air with majesty, which is to say they're going to score some goals through the air. So the lip is honors is how I'm choosing to introduce Denmark. Uh, Graham Ruffin, can you please Sorry. tell us your nickname for China? Yes, Joe, first, yeah, go ahead. I, I have like a lot of questions. Yeah. I will uh -huh. just boil it down to uh -huh. one. Uh -huh. Taylor, that was really good, first statement. I'm very impressed by that. I think um, anything that's led in with, I have a bunch of questions, no. I don't really believe that you then think <laughs> no, it was like, really good. You'd kind of led us to believe in the pre-show that yours mm -hmm. was like such a big stretch. And it is a stretch, but it's a creative it's one. It's clunky. How, how long does it take you to think of these nicknames? Because I've spent a, a decent amount of time, but usually if I haven't found a good one, within, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of doing things around the house, I'll probably just settle. I don't think you ever settle on your nicknames. How long does it take you to think of these? Uh, it's probably the last thing I do, honestly, because okay. I do all the other research and then try to figure out sort of what the story is and then what's the best way I can do it. And really, I think the story is this is a team that hasn't been to any of the last three World Cups, at least. Uh, they've, they've done better in the Euros and in qualifying for the Euros. Uh, and so looking at them, I feel like there is a compelling argument that they are dark horses. So I did a lot with that, and then I realized, like, no, they're just very good. They should get out of this group. They should make a run. So what's a horse that, like, was the dark but isn't? And then course. the honor came to mind. It of really course. was because I think I saw Crimson Tide Yeah, you were watching uh, Crimson Tide. Well, that's the, the only explanation for this. How much money no. is Freebie paying Taylor on the backside? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 if I were, if I were, if I named my team after what I was watching, it would be uh, Jesse Gemstone. I don't know who that would be. The loudest team who screams the most but doesn't really produce that much. Maybe the United States, Joe. You can have that one when we get to the U.S. preview. I'm honored. Uh, but until then, uh, Graham, can you tell us about China? So do you want me to give you the nickname and then the story of the team, or are we just yeah. going with yeah. my TSS Go nickname? for it. Okay, so my uh, my TSS unofficial nickname I've gone for is Fans of the 90s. So Ryan Baylor will probably feel something in common with China. We know that he <laughs> loves the 90s. Things were good for China back then. They were one of the original powerhouses of the Women's World Cup. And since then, though, they've sort of been left behind. So China is a country with real pedigree at the Women's World Cup. They've qualified for all but one Women's World Cup. 
Um, they made the round of 16 four years ago. They made the quarterfinals in 2015 and in 2007 and uh, 2003, and they even made the final in 1999. They have never failed to make it out of the group stage in every Women's World Cup they have played, but that feels like it'll be a real challenge for them in this group, given the strength of the draw, the, the, the group that they have landed in here that we are previewing today. It is a little bit difficult to get a read on where Chinese women's football is at this specific moment in time. I mean, generally speaking, the Chinese national team has suffered a slump over the last decade, which is where my nickname comes from. Their World Cup performances, if you look at the chart, have dropped off pretty much tournament by tournament since the 2000s. Uh, they conceded 17 goals in just three games at the Tokyo Olympics, which wasn't acceptable at all. Some changes were made. But then China won the Asian Cup last year. So, and that's how they qualified for this tournament. So that's what that's what I mean by it's a little bit difficult to get a read on them at the moment. Um, that was the first time they had won the Asian Cup since 2006. So that was a big deal. There is hope that this team has come together at the right time for this tournament. But back to the bad news... China have struggled in games against elite-level opponents recently. They they recently have lost pretty heavily to Sweden and Spain in friendlies this year. They drew against the Republic of Ireland, um, which is not a disastrous result, but if you're talking about being one of the front runners for this tournament, um, it doesn't really feel like much of a platform. They did beat Russia in back-to-back games last week, but their form doesn't exactly hint that China are going to make a real impact at this uh, at this tournament. And the really concerning thing for China is that the goals have dried up this year. And that is in contrast to how they played at the Asian Cup, where they played this re- this brand of really attack-minded, chaotic football that, that worked for them. And at that point, it felt like they'd found the, 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 re- the right focus to this team. Um, it felt like they were evoking some of the spirit of those teams in the 90s that were so successful at the top of the women's game. But things have regressed this year into the build-up, uh, in the build-up to this World Cup. So that is a bit concerning. What was the nickname again? As a result? Fans of the 90s. Fans of the 90s. So, friends? Should we just call them friends? Sure, why not? (laughs) Friends of the 90s slash friends. I like it. Uh, Joe Lowry, uh, tell us about Haiti, if you would. All right, folks. So, my nickname for Haiti is the neutral's favorite because they have everything that, as a neutral, you would want to see from a soccer team at a World Cup. They have an incredible story. They have an elite attacking star who is also one of the most talented up-and-comers in the world and they have questionable individual defenders. So you will be entertained, at least by goals, in games that involve Haiti at this World Cup. They check all of the boxes for you, dear listener, if you are, in fact, a neutral. Here's how Haiti got here. First of all, it's going to be their first ever World Cup. It's a massive accomplishment for them. Soccer is still very much trying to grow in Haiti. It hasn't gotten a big boost from national teams at World Cups in the past. The men's teams qualify for just one World Cup. That was back in 1974, And this women's team has never been to a World Cup until this one. They never made it to the Olympics either. They've only qualified for six of the 11 CONCACAF W championships in history. So they they haven't even been a guaranteed presence at qualifying tournaments and regional competitions at high levels in CONCACAF. But they are here now after finishing third in Group A at the CONCACAF W championship last summer. They finished behind Jamaica and the United States that got them to the Intercontinental Playoff, where they went to beat Senegal 4-0 and Chile 2-1 to make it to the World Cup. Those games were back in February. And I went back through and watched large chunks of those games, in particular the end of that win against Chile. was amazing to watch. Like, if you have time to go through, even watch the highlights. Like, watch the celebrations. Players crying, celebrating. It, It gives you chills when you watch it. It's a really special moment to be able to see that with that win over Chile to qualify for the World Cup was 
just incredible. First World Cup, you know, obviously it was going to be a big moment, but there's more for Haiti here than just the soccer side. And I think that applies to so many of the different conversations that we've had around various teams heading into the World Cup. For Haiti, I think this recent story from the Associated Press sums it up really, really well. This is a little bit of a, an excerpt from that. It said they don't have any sponsors. Their training center closed because of gang violence and some of their biggest fans can't afford a TV. Haiti's soccer team earned a place at the Women's World Cup despite all those obstacles and remains undeterred. I, I love the way that that's phrased. There's so many challenges in Haiti right now. So it is genuinely very, very cool that this team is at the World Cup. Like They, they still haven't recovered. Haiti is a, a nation from the 2010 earthquake and, and health issues that followed and corruption and gangs and the list kind of goes on and on. It, even, obviously, this a lot of this stuff affects the larger population in Haiti but you can draw ties to the soccer team. Like that, that 2010 earthquake, the Haitian Soccer Federation said that 30 of its members died when the Federation's headquarters collapsed. So you have that fact, which is horrible and tragic. And then since then, there has been some rebuilding, including the start of an academy called Academy Camp Nou, which is a new youth training center and development hub built with proceeds that were given to Haiti after the earthquake. But it just kind of feels like, again, Haiti can't catch a break. Like even the small bits of good came with bad and, and really bad and horrible things. Yves John Bart, who was the former head of the Haitian Soccer Federation, was given a lifetime ban by FIFA after accusations of sexual abuse, some of which occurred at that new academy that was built after the earthquake. That ban has since been overturned, though not at all without controversy, and there's a lot that's going on there. Uh, and it, it feels like a really awful situation and, and reports that victims were pressured into being silent, which has something to do with this being overturned. Like just so much violence and economic crisis and personal crisis happening in Haiti right now. This World Cup is a very real chance to bring hope to a country. I think even by stepping on the field, that will happen. By qualifying, that absolutely happened already. Like Haiti's men's team has even been talking about like how, how they at the Gold Cup can try to bring some joy to people back home. Like this for the women's team at a much larger stage is a heavy burden, but it is absolutely a good opportunity as well. I think players are embracing that opportunity. All right. So that is Haiti Joe, a very good introduction to the situation with Haiti and the Haitian national team. Haiti, the neutrals favorite, says Joe. Switzerland, of course, still the favorite neutrals. Uh, David Goss, round it out. Tell us about the England Leonidas. Um, well, I really wish I hadn't gone after Joe because mine's going in a whole different direction and, and it's not yeah, very say, good. Tough act. Yeah. Tough act to follow. Um, this is not an attack on the English women's national team in any way. This is as doing this research and preparing for this World Cup. This was one of the teams where it really hit me that I'm going to have to watch a Fox broadcast for a month, pump the same three stars in three teams. So I'm going to call them the Kevin Hearts oh, no. because they're just going to be involved no matter what. <laughs> like they could be previewing two random teams and at some point they're going to pull in a British speaking person on set yeah. and be like, are you good enough? Is it good enough? Can it be better? It has to be better. And I realized that in doing this England game because... I will tell a lot of this story as we go along, but coming into the World Cup, they were equal favorites by betting odds with the United States. At least here in the U.S., the lines have shifted because everyone's going to bet on the U.S. that's in, the, in America. This is a team that you could argue their four most famous players and their three best players are not at this tournament. 
And so the image of who they are coming into this tournament and I think the reality of what the team is are different. And I can already tell you how Fox is going to handle that for what we have to watch, which is just going to be pounding it into the ground about how much better they could and should be. And my apologies to Kelly Smith already for having to be the brunt of that on every single broadcast. I, I'm excited now. I, I can't wait for England to be involved in every conversation the way Messi and Ronaldo seem to be uh, on the men's side of things. I couldn't think of a celebrity who what I didn't want to do like Kardashians, but it's like, you know, Kevin Hart, where it's like, yeah, the Super Bowl is happening and Kevin Hart's going to be on the pregame show. And you're like, what is Kevin Hart doing there? Dude, I, I heard a podcast once where they were talking about if you were going to do the, like the heat scene again of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, if you're going to sell an entire movie on like these two guys meet each other. Uh, and the sad realization they had was that it's probably The Rock and Kevin Hart is how you get that movie made. So, yes, to your point, uh, David, Kevin Hart shows up in everything. Maybe better in small doses. Maybe England better as an underdog or as a less heralded team. We'll see how they do as favorites. I'm guessing it will be talked about on the Fox coverage. Uh, let's talk more about these teams in Group D in just a moment. First, let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. We have given you the nicknames and the unofficial nicknames as well as the story so far. Let's hear a bit about the teams, their managers, and their tactics. Uh, for Denmark, that manager would be Lars Sundergaard, 64-year-old manager who's been in charge since 2017. It is difficult to find a lot of information about Lars Sundergaard, which given how much negative information there is to be found about many different coaches and uh, FA directors, maybe that's not the worst thing to have for Denmark heading in. Uh, he took over after they went to the final of the 2017 Euros, losing to the Dutch. They then failed to qualify for the 2019 World Cup, which is obviously not ideal. Uh, things were looking better when they qualified for the Euros. Then they're put in a group with Spain and Germany. That did not go well for them, though. Uh, they get blown out by Germany. They only lose 1-0 to Spain in the 90th minute in the dying moments of the last game. So... For a minute there, it was a chance they could make it out of the group, but they did not. Uh, but there has been a good amount of change in this team since those uh, Euros and since uh, Sundergaard took over in 2017. And that is reflected in the way that they got here, which is by qualifying with eight wins from eight games, 40 goals for two against. Uh, their closest game was a 2-0 away win at Malta and a 2-0 home win versus Azerbaijan. Over the course of qualifying, Signe Brun was their top scorer with 13 goals, followed by Stina Larsen with seven, but Larsen is out for this tournament. So too is uh, Nadia Nadim, uh, one of their, their most capped, most sort of known players. She will not be there either. Uh, they played in a back three through qualifying and in the Euros. 
they have transitioned more recently to a 4-3-3, and I'm hoping that is what they stick with for this tournament because they have looked better. They have been able to control games more when they want to. They've been able to sit a little bit deeper in counterattack when they want to. I think it does give them more flexibility. Uh, they're number nine, whomever that may be, uh, more on their individual players in a bit is more likely to link, sort of drop in, and then make those those runs in behind. The wide players are the ones who are going to be really trying to find the gaps and will be the recipients of the direct balls to then look for some crosses. Defensively, uh, they're going to be more of a mid-block 4-1-4-1 team. They want the opposition to come out a little bit. They, they are maybe anticipating more defensive teams at points in this tournament, so I think they're going to invite their opponent to carry the ball forward to then have those gaps to exploit. Uh, and they're going to trust their center backs likely to be Pedersen and boy. I'm going to talk about Pedersen for a bit later uh, to win everything in the air and be very good. So they're going to essentially attack out wide and funnel opposition attacks out wide because they trust their defenders to win everything in the air and to keep number central to really crowd uh, opposition from getting any good opportunities. So that was the story of Denmark, how they got here, their tactics and their manager. Graham, if you would tell us about China, please. So, Shuia Shwing Shuia. I'm so, so sorry. I can only apologize. Did you say Shwing? Shuia Shwing Shuia. Shing Shuia, I think, is how I've, I've written them down phonetically after mm-hmm. going to Google and, you know, you get those sites that tell you how to pronounce things. Yeah, that is my, that's my best shot. That's what I've got. So, she is the, the current head coach of the Chinese national team. She's been in charge since uh, 2021. She was a legendary player for China. She was part of the team that won the Asian Cup in 1986. Um, she would then win that trophy another four times and she was part of the team that won silver at the 96 Olympics as well. So she is a, a well-known figure in Chinese soccer circles and um, Xing Shuia was b- brought in after the disastrous Tokyo Olympics campaign that I referenced earlier on where China were conceding goals for fun, 17 and three games. She had been coaching Shanghai in the domestic league in China and things have improved since Xing Shuia came into the, the team. As a player, she was known for being tough and very disciplined, and she has brought those qualities into management, into this team. But she has also spoken about recognising that the younger generation require a bit of a sort of different treatment. She has brought in a number of young players to try and revitalise the national team. She talks about having to put an arm around them and, and kind of guiding them through the major tournaments. Um, she's done a lot to create a sense of togetherness in the dressing room as well. Some of her team talks, particularly during that successful Asian Cup campaign, went viral. So... She's turning the team around. She is a popular figure at this at this um, moment in time, albeit it is a slow, gradual process um, that turning turning around of the team. In terms of their shape, China are expected to line up in a 4-4-2 at this World Cup. That is the shape they've predominantly used for the last 12 months or so. They're a very narrow team in the way that the midfield four are positioned pretty centrally. And the, the idea is that this helps them defensively as even if they're conceding the, the the wide space they're repelling balls when they come in and, and limiting opposition chances to low value opportunities China in the attack they then play two centre forwards and their roles are to hold up play bring others into the attack pretty rudimentary stuff um, to be honest but it can be effective defensively China play a back four as I mentioned they tend to stay quite deep I expect we'll see them in a low block against England who will probably have a lot more of the ball just by default and even in the game against Denmark as well, I think that China will be quite deep for those matches. They are ranked in the fifth percentile for possession share per 90 minutes at this tournament. So that tells you 
something about where their focus is as a, as a team. They're a team that likes to play quite direct and in quick transition in an attacking sense. As I say, it can be quite rudimentary in, in its approach. So, for instance, it's really not uncommon for China to launch it forward from a goal kick, get one of the two strikers to flick it on, and then they fight for the second ball and, and, and they go from there. In the wide areas, I did notice that they will get the, the fullbacks forwards quite high. They tuck the winger inside and they have one of the strikers as an apex. And if they're going to play through you in a match, which they don't do very often, but if they do it in a match, it'll likely be through those triangles out wide and then they create space and overloads in that, in, in that area. Um, set pieces are also a key part of China's game, uh, China's game plan. They're in the high percentiles for set pieces one and set piece, set piece goals as well. We will see at least one or two different set set piece routines from China at this World Cup. They're one of the, te- the, the teams that will do something imaginative, something that they've worked on on the training ground where maybe a couple of players pull out to create space. Runners come from outside the box into that space. They are pretty good at that. So in many ways, China are an archetypal international team. In terms of their focus, they focus on staying compact, on staying narrow, being organized at the back, and then playing quickly in the counter and they use set pieces well. It's a template that a number of teams use. It tends to be a template that either teams in transition or limited teams in terms of their talent use, but it's used for good reason. It can be very efficient in tournament football. Uh, Graham, a couple follow-ups from me. Since you are being honest in your pronunciation abilities, I will be honest in my math abilities. Can you go back to that five percent stat for a moment? Yeah. Does that so five percent means they are bad at possession or not yeah, so inclined to have possession? Yeah. Right. The bo- cool. they're in the bottom five percent of. I don't think actually. I think I said it was teams uh, at this World Cup. I think it's pro. It's all international teams. Just Joe, every team like in the world. FBA, FBA my, ref. Yeah. I think my so nieces, U seven team. Not able to possess as much as... <laughs> gotcha, cool. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're included in that equation. Yep, yeah, all F- of them. FB ref, uh, stats bomb, count that, yeah. And then a, a larger question for the group that is almost certainly a question of ignorance, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Graham, when you talk about there will be like more designed set pieces, do you all feel like that's more of a feature of the women's game? I feel like I see more videos at club level and at international level of very elaborate design set pieces, including the ones where they like fake who was supposed to take it and then get into an argument and then someone else runs through and takes it. I feel like there's more of that than I ever see on the men's side. And it's one thing that uh, if that's the case, I'm very much excited to see. I'm not sure about that, but I did uh, preview Ireland and saw something very similar from them. I think my VSP was related to set pieces. And when I was looking at their set piece setup, there was a lot of very intricately choreographed set pieces in there. So I don't know, maybe I, I, we'll, we'll find out during the World Cup, I guess. That just sounds, sounds very like on the men's side. It's like, I'm going to hit it. And then on the women's <laughs> side, there's more like planning and preparation uh, to make something happen. Yeah, that feels right. That feels right. Uh, so that would be China. Well done, Graham. Thank you for that. Uh, to Joe, we go to talk about Haiti. All right. So Haiti's manager is Nicolas Delapine, 44-year-old French manager has been around the women's game for a while, including with Nantes over in France. Right now, he's the head coach of Grenoble Foot 38, which is in the second division in France. So he's doing both jobs. He's both coaching Haiti at the international level and coaching a club team in France. He had this quote about kind of that that balance. When others rest during the international breaks, we go to the selection on the other side of the world. This is translated, by the way. On the other side of the world, I don't often see my son, who's only available during holidays, and I, during holidays, go on an internship with the selection. Again, translated. Fortunately, Christmas is the only time when the calendars agree, and I can enjoy my family. Now, the way it's translated makes it sound like he hates his family. I'm not sure if that is actually correct, or if that's more of a function of the French-to-English divide there. But either way, we don't see a lot of managers in the modern age 
do both jobs. Like I think of that as something that is more of a pass thing, but this does speak to Hades' lack of mice, right? Like they, they don't have the resources or at least haven't chosen to allocate the resources, but I would lean towards the first to go out there and hire a coach to just do their job. Like you would want as a nation to be able to go out and find somebody who's going to be fully dedicated to what you're doing. And in between international breaks, they're brainstorming ideas and they're going out and watching tape and trying to identify players that can go and really help this club, help this national team, excuse me. Haiti hasn't had the chance to do that. Like Delapine said recently that he still has barely been to Haiti. Said last year that he's only been there once since taking the job. So he he doesn't still have this real connection to Haiti yet outside of the players and, and maybe absorbing some of the culture along the way because Haiti do a lot of their, their home camp, home camps in air quotes, in the Dominican Republic because of the instability in Haiti. So again, so many challenges here for this country, so many challenges for this team. But Delapine is the manager. Tactically, they've got a really tough road ahead. Like all three of these teams are much higher up the FIFA rankings than Haiti. I think it's pretty clear that Haiti are the weakest team in this group. I, th I think they're really going to struggle. What I'm expecting to see, though, is a 4-4-2 defensively with a 4-2-3-1 a in attack. They're going to prioritize compactness and look to transition through some of their really skilled attacking players. Those players will be able to hang. As you work back the lines, I'm, I'm less confident. They're going to defend deep and really try to limit the total number of shots in their games as a cover for their talent deficit. Like, this is why, Graham, you talked about with China. In, in tournaments, sometimes we see teams be super rigid defensively. And the idea is, the more defensive you are, the fewer high-quality shots that are going to be in a game. Like, if I'm camped out towards my goal, I, I'm obviously discouraging the opposition from taking a shot. So the fewer high-quality shots there are in a game, the more randomness there is, right? So if I'm going to take one shot, and the opposition are going to take, like, one or two good shots, my chances of winning are increased versus if I let the game as a bad team be super open and, and give them obvious pathways to goal. So more randomness equals a better chance to pull off an upset. So that's the recipe for Haiti. That's what they're thinking coming in, being defensive, trying to limit the total number of chances as a way for them to maybe nick one on the break and, and maybe that can be a, a tool for them to pull off an upset. It's going to be really hard. It's not going to be totally impossible, but it's going to be really, really hard for this team some of the talent up top that can be really effective on the break. Melchie Dumornay is, is the young star that I referenced at the top. I'll talk more about her in just a moment. She is a legitimate superstar on the global yeah, stage. She, she would be on any team at this competition. There's absolutely no doubt about that. She's probably the only player that can really, that, that, that can be set out for Haiti. Not that they wouldn't have some players that are good enough for other teams, but Dumornay is absolutely the star. She will be conducting a lot of those counterattacks. I'll get to her in, in more detail here shortly, but Expect to see a lot of defending from Haiti. It won't always be the most organized, but the hope is that it'll be as organized as possible and they'll be trying to go out and find space on the break. And Joe, just to further lay the groundwork, looking at the results in the CONCACAF W Championship, the yeah. qualifying tournament that got them here, 3-0 uh, loss to the United States. Uh, what do they do? 3-0 win over Mexico and then 4-0 loss to Jamaica. Does that kind of serve as further evidence that even when they try to shut up shop, they might still not do so effectively? Especially that Jamaica game, right? Like Jamaica, yeah. a, a team that I'll be previewing later on, also not one of the stronger teams at this World Cup. Mexico didn't make the World Cup. The U.S., I, I did a little rant before we started recording, oftentimes don't press their advantages in the way that they should. So that 3-0 loss, I think, is actually mm -hmm. a really good result for Haiti. And Dumornay gave Becky Sauerbrunn fits in that game. Like she was 
absolutely electric, to yeah. use the word that you just said there, Graham. Like, that was a decent performance for Haiti. But then you see the, the big blowout loss to Jamaica, and you sort of realize, man, this is going to be an uphill battle. All right. Is Joe sponsored by JetBlue that he has all the Caribbean nations? I, I, drafted, I, mean, them. I drafted them all. <laughs> I want them. So I'm sponsored by a discount streaming Freebie. service, and Joe yeah. gets JetBlue. I feel like Joe's winning. Yeah, we'll see who I'm, Graham gets. I'm winning, but like not by a lot. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> I'm winning, but but not by a huge margin. Graham, who are you sponsored by? Duolingo. Duolingo. Uh, I feel like Graham wins that one of the three. Maybe JetBlue on top. Who knows? Uh, Goss, who have England sponsored uh, you by? That's a sentence I tried to go with. Uh, go for it, Goss. Sponsored by Marks and Spencers. Did okay. I say that right, Graham? Oh, I love Marks and Spencers. There you go. I got it don't right. Be, don't be bad both in M and S. Um, I think they actually are the sponsor for the uh, yeah, for they the, are. For the <laughs> upscale the clothing. Yeah, that the uh, that the team wears um, for England. I think a lot of this most people know, but Serena Wiegman is the manager. She was the Netherlands manager. She is Dutch. Over a hundred caps in her career with the Netherlands. I didn't know this. She played at UNC. For a year, did anyone else know this? Joe seems. To I, I had heard that before. Yeah. So she played there in '89 because she was at the pre World Cup tournament because '91 was technically the first official Women's World Cup. So in '89 there was a tournament in China, and Anson Dorrance was the USA coach. She played for the Netherlands, met him, he recruited her. So that '89 team, he was she was at UNC with Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly. Um, her lead is the name of the club that she played for most of her career. And then I definitely pronounced that wrong. As much work as Graham put in, I'm putting like zero work in for one that's not that hard. And then she ended up retiring and becoming a coach there, moved on to coach uh, Adio Den Haag for seven years before she got on with the Netherlands national team. So she started out as an assistant, became the interim, took over as the full-time manager in 2016 while also working as a club manager, so Joe, there's a little shout for you there. I know how you yep. love that that double work there. And then since then, she has become known as, I think in some minds, the best women's manager in the national team game. They hosted the Euros, obviously, in 2017. She won it for the Netherlands. 2019 brought the Netherlands to the Women's World Cup final, lost to the U.S., and then took over England, where she won the European Championship in 2002. She's been awarded the FIFA Coach of the Year three times, and she's been the runner-up twice since she's taken over the Netherlands six, or she took over the Netherlands over six years ago. Tactically, I think everyone got to see all of this at the Euros last year. They dominate games in possession, a ton of short passing, and they build out consistently all the time. Erps in goal. And then having Walsh drop in as their center mid, who is arguably the best in the world at what she does. Stamway and Toon will be the two in central midfield alongside her that will play higher to give space for them to build out of. They will push the fullbacks high. They will split the center backs out wide. Um, and then the other key piece to their system is their high pressing. They press maybe the most of any team at this World Cup and on the planet. Um, and it doesn't matter what style of pressing whether it's trapping to win it back to create chances, trying to trap in dangerous areas to force you to go long to lose possession or force you to go long for them to create chances. So they'll trap any center back. The moment they take a step out of the middle of the field, their center mids will push high on anyone in front of them to try and win the initial 50-50. It leaves them slightly exposed in the back. And the one interesting thing about them is if they get broken and they reset their lines, they'll just trap again immediately. They are not going to sit back in a low block against 
any of the opponents in this group and probably any of the opponents at this World Cup. It opens them up and exposes them a bit. Um, and when you watch them play, what's fun about them for me is I like high-pressing teams, but I don't love watching them in possession. That's not England. They press high, they win it back, then they recycle possession and actually use the ball to move opponents around to take advantage of different spots in the field. It's not just win it, make a pass, because we're either going to turn it over and counter-press or we're going to score. It's not that Red Bull system. It's like a different style of doing it, and it worked to great success for them. Because they won the European Championship, it's the first ever trophy um, in this nation's history at the senior level uh, on the women's side. And then since then, they've been dominant. They were plus 80 goal differential in qualifying. Yeah. Did they concede any? Um, I believe I saw they scored 80. I can't remember if they oh, conceded a single I, goal. I, they may have. So Austria played them tough. They beat Austria 3-0 on aggregate across the two games. They beat Latvia 20-0. Uh, so credit yeah. to North Macedonia who and Luxembourg, who outplayed Latvia over the course of this World Cup qualifying. And they just had a ton of huge games. They played in the Arnold Clark Cup, which they won over Korea, Italy, and Belgium. And then they had uh, the first ever women's finalissima against the South American champions, Brazil, which they ended up winning in uh, penalty kicks. They then lost to Australia, which I talked about in our group. B preview, huge moment for Australia. On the flip side, that was England's first loss in 30 straight matches. And they followed that up with a nil-nil draw against Portugal. Um, so they haven't scored a goal in uh, 250 yeah. minutes of straight action. And this is this weird spot this team sits in, like I talked about in the open of huge expectations. The sport has uh, on the women's side has reached levels it's never reached before. This team is celebrities. There's, you know, hopes that they can win. They have not played that way coming into it. And one final thing to mention, there's a little bit of an issue between the players and the FA right now. There's a disagreement. Um, the players feel that they should be getting more out, out of what's coming from this tournament. The way I understood this, and feel free to correct me if any of you know better than me, is that FIFA, when they announced how much of the winnings are going to players rather than FAs, was more than the FA calculated. And it's massively more than what it was last time, which is good. But it means that the FA is actually going to lose money on the tournament because of travel and the way they budgeted things. And the women on the team are saying, well, the further we go, the more money you make commercially because we are a bigger deal. We are on TV more often. We are around more often. So we deserve more of the Fox money. Knew, Fox is going to talk about us exactly. the entire tournament, whether or not we want them to. Yeah. And obviously, for many of these teams, they're looking at what the U.S., has just done. They're looking at what Australia has done. I believe Denmark as well. So there's trying to pull from that. Um, the FA says they've done as much as they can. They've offered each player $10,000 stipend to bring friends and family all the way to Australia. So it's kind of hit or miss here or there. Yep. I don't have a strong opinion personally. I think so the FA banned women's soccer and made it illegal because it was unhealthy in 1921 and they did not support a women's team in any way until 1969, did not officially bring the team back till 1993. It feels like maybe you owe some money back for ruining the sport and making it illegal to play competitively for 100 years. But that's like just my opinion. I'm not sure where we land on that. So one of the factors with so, so the way that the equation has been come up with is in the UK there wasn't a, and I think this is tied in and I don't I don't I can't explain fully how it's tied into the equation but there wasn't a broadcast deal for this World Cup in the UK until like two weeks ago we're talking about and this was something that was common across Europe it wasn't just 
the UK, it was Germany, it was Italy, it was France, it was Spain, it was all the big European nations. FIFA were squeezing the broadcaster for more money. I think the BBC in the UK were actually putting up what FIFA thought was a fair offer. It was a lot of the... I saw the offer from like the German broadcaster and it was it was something unbelievably pitiful. Like it was it was pennies. It was nothing. And so because FIFA awarded those rights all at once, that was left until the very mm. last moment. So I think the FA part of their argument is well, we don't actually know what is coming in from the full World Cup pot. So because there is an equation where the amount of money that you make as a national it you draw in from broadcast um, deals is then fed back to you as a national federation. So if you're getting um, more money as England, then the FA is going to receive more money. So I realise I'm in a difficult spot defending the FA after you made your point there, Gas, about them banning football for 100 years. But I, I think that was part of the context there. I did think it was pretty ruthless of the English FA to go with the threat of, if you all don't take our offer, we'll bring Phil Neville back as manager. That felt really, really unnecessarily harsh, but I guess it worked out in the end. Goss, in that 20-0 win over Latvia, was the British press as furious about them scoring 20 goals as they were about the United States scoring 13, or did they choose to let that slide? Have we made that joke about one team in every single group so far? I believe so. I think we have. I just want to make sure we're consistent. I'm going to keep it going, because I'm bitter about it, especially... With, uh, with certain English pundits being very, very shocked and appalled by Alex Morgan's tea celebration. Yeah. Anyway. They, they scored 20 goals in that game, but a, a legitimate point is I watched their last tune-up game against Portugal, and they did not look like scoring one goal in that yeah. game, never mind 20. And I'm not going to steal Gas's thunder with some of the individuals, but they're, they've got a choice between two different number nines at the moment. It doesn't really seem like Wiegmann knows which one to go with. The, some of their best attacking players aren't going to be there. They're not their their um their main creator. Their main number ten is missing for this tournament as well. So I do think this is Serena Wiegmann's biggest challenge as as England manager, maybe even an international manager in in general. This is her biggest challenge, and the fear for England is they peaked at the Euros last summer. And this is then maybe slightly coming back down the other side. Yeah, can I ask a quick question? Sorry, I know we've we've gone a bit long on England here. I didn't watch that nil-nil draw with Portugal between England, England and Portugal. I am looking at the stats right now, which you should watch the games and look at the stats if you're just going to do one or the other. Just don't do that and do both instead. Uh, they outshot Portugal 23-2 to and, and dominated kind of all of the obvious statistical categories. I know that that does not equate to a good performance because I watched the U.S. play Wales yesterday. Um <laughs> Graham or, or Goss, either way, like, you know, we're talking about tactics. Was there something obvious that you felt like went wrong there? Like, what what am I missing, basically? It just feels like the... It, I feel like I'm going to steal a lot of Gas's thunder here with some of the individuals. But, right, the choice of number nine is between Alessio Russo and Rachel Daly, right? right. Rachel Daly, who played left-back for England at the The Euros, Crystal Dunn problem, yes. Exactly. Has just had an excellent <laughs> season in the in the WSL for Villa, top goal scorer in that league. So she's kind of forcing Serena Wiegmann's hand yeah. a little bit. And Alessio Russo was one of the breakout um, stars of, of the Euros last summer. Ellen White has retired um, since the Euros. And so it feels like that whole attacking unit, when you take out... Beth Meads, who mm-hmm. I'm really stealing your thunder here. Yeah, you are. Afraid, right? it's, the but, uh, it's, dif- it's difficult to uh, it's yeah. difficult to answer this question without going into individuals. Beth Meads injured. Frank Kirby is the creator. I think she's injured as well. Yeah. So you're taking out like four, like three of the f- starting four attackers for England, and it just feels like they haven't had the time to build up any sort of chemistry. So there was a lot of like crosses into the box and Alessio sure. Russo like flicking on a header and that counts as a shot on target but it's a pretty easy save for the goalkeeper or it's a shot from outside the box and yeah. it just really didn't feel like things were clicking. And that was the big one and the big thing here is 
England have established who they are, and everyone's going to sit back against them. And it's where they did struggle at times in Euros. And you remember the game against Spain, where Spain chose to open up in moments, but not as much as maybe we expected Spain to. And England wasn't able to score until extra time. Um, and so a lot of these shots are coming from distance. And this is sort of the question mark with Wiegmann is there's a lot of individual questions. Russo being a big one because Russo's very specific in like a hold-up center forward, which may not help you in a team against a team that's playing deep. But the question is, does England turn up what they do to 500 and see if that works at some point? Or do they change? And what it feels like Wiegmann has tried over the course of this year is to find those changes. But in doing so, she keeps losing a star player every single time they come into a new camp. And so anytime it feels like she comes on to a solution, now you have to solve a new problem. And a lot of the problems are cascading, which is if Rachel Daly is your center forward. You now have to find a new left back. Or are you even going to play her at left back? And there are a few of these answers, which I'll get into as we go along, which is if you want to move this player, now you have to move two players. And is that better off for your team? Since we're going down the England rabbit hole, have you gotten a sense or have any of you gotten a sense that any of the players are particularly agitated about that? To my mind, Joe, I think it feels like the Crystal Dunn analogy is, is pretty dead on. And I feel like she's always done a very good job of saying, like, yeah, I wouldn't mind playing some other stuff, but also, you know, I'm happy to do my job for the team. Like, I feel like she toes that well, but we have obviously seen other instances when players will be more open about not being happy with where they're being played or how they're being utilized. Have you heard any sort of uh, discontent in the ranks? So I saw, uh, saw an oh. interview with Russo, sorry, guys, and after this, after the Portugal game, where she comes on, she comes on in the second half, I believe, and it's Rachel Daly that starts that game. Yep. And... It wasn't what she said. She told the party line. I think Russo isn't very happy with because after the Euros, the the basically the unwritten promise was essentially Ellen White is has retired. You were the breakout star of this tournament. You're going to be like the next England number nine. She plays for Manchester. United. She's just joined for Ar- signed for Arsenal in like a record WSL deal. So everything points to her being the next focal point of this England team. But she's not a great fit, as Gas says. Like she's a hold-up striker. She's she is like quite an orthodox, old-fashioned number nine, and so Rachel Daly's being used, who is like in her late thirties, has essentially, I don't want to be harsh, but has had her career like at the top level. This is a bit of an encore for Rachel Daly, and I think Russo is looking that at that and thinking, why why is she coming into the fold, and why why are you not building around me as the number nine? Uh, very very. I interesting. just because I think we all need this. Rachel Daly's 31, so let's not, let's not age all <laughs> of us here. Just me. <laughs> so, full disclosure, I She's broadcast... Younger than I thought she was. I broadcast fair. Rachel Daly's college career, um, and I was on the call for her second ever game. It's compromised, folks. Hat trick it's compromised. Against Paris. So I am, <laughs> I am going to be biased for Rachel Daly the whole time, but I also knew she was not as old as I am, so I, she was a little bit younger. Um, she was a fullback growing up, she converted to center forward in college because she was too good and then went into the pro ranks at fullback, got converted to center forward again because she was too good. And then for England, has played at fullback. But now going into the league, she scored more goals than Russo. And that's part of yeah. the hard part of this is like Russo can think it's her job, but in the same league, and you could argue Daly did it for a worse team. She scored more goals than her over the course of the season. And that's part of the question mark. There's a question whether Daly would even play left back. And that's kind of, I don't think that's as much Rachel Daly saying, I don't want to. I think for a Viegman, it's kind of like, once I set this, 
remember, this is a coach who didn't change the starting lineup the entire Euro run. So Wiegmann historically is, once I said it, I would like to leave it. I would like people to get comfortable in their roles. And so we have not seen Daly play left back. My thought is, if they struggle, that's when you will see Rachel Daly at left back, sort of as a last case scenario. Very interesting. I appreciate all that. I appreciate that Graham started by saying, I'm not going to steal Goss's thunder. And by the end of that was basically <laughs> saying, screw you, Goss, you're pre- previewing China I, Initially, now. I left out the names, <laughs> but then Joe asked me specifics. And I was like, okay, I have to put in names here. Uh, go, go, Joe, go Joe turned and said, hey, Graham, can I get the notable omissions, injuries, very specific prediction, <laughs> as well as the star players? Yeah, do you want VSP, Joe? <laughs> Gus, I really value your contribution, but shut up for a second. Graham, I got some questions for you. Uh, that was me being Joe. Joe, uh, we love you always. We also love taking a break. We'll come back to conclude our Group D preview in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Uh, Graham, do you have uh, a detailed preview for uh, Denmark to, to no, roll out? Okay. No, that one's all yours. <laughs> okay. I, I, was, I mean, I wouldn't mind the, the help here. Uh, Graham's basically like, if I don't have to pronounce Chinese names, I'm doing it. So yes, just give me yes. the chance. <laughs> and we should say, I feel like Graham has already attempted to pronounce more names than Fox probably will in most of their play-by-play and color commentary. So, Graham, you're already ahead of the curve. Well done That's to a little you. Bump. Yes, Uh, and well done to Denmark for being a team that I am excited to watch. They are another team I'm adding to the list of teams that I think will be fun. Uh, But instead of fun, I'm starting with the defense because I think they're all very experienced, very good. Their back four, if that's what they go with, is most likely to be uh, Rike Seveke at right back, Stina Balisager-Pedersen and Simon Boy-Sorensen as your center backs and Sofia Svava at left back. 
Uh, she will offer energy and impact, but I have not watched a ton of her. I have watched much more of Stina Balasagar Pedersen, uh, and she is one that I think is going to be a very smart signing for uh, the Kansas City Current, who she will be joining after the World Cup. KC fans, you should be excited. She's a 29-year-old center back, 127 appearances for Valoranga in Denmark. Uh, she was Danish Women's Footballer of the Year in 2022. Uh, and everything I had read about her is that she is dominant in the air. She's so good in the air. She wins everything. She's good on set pieces. She's good in defense. She is only five foot seven. So then watching her, number one, she's got ups, and five foot seven, still pretty, pretty tall. She has the ups, but she has a read of the game that is exceptional. And that's the thing that really stood out to me is how often she is able to gauge what a player is doing in transition. So if the ball's out wide, she's very good at sort of like making a step or two really aggressively towards the player on the ball and then backpedaling really quickly and being there for the cross that comes in and taking it with her chest. But then also sometimes she'll do the opposite and then step forward and cut out a sort of low cross uh, or low pass across the top of the box. She reads situations really well, especially in transition, and then is good in the air on top. So she is, I think, a solid defender who will be solid for the Kansas City Current, but uh, even better for Denmark in this World Cup. Then ahead of her, uh, Karem Holmgaard will function as the single pivot, is critical in building out of the back, very calm on the ball, uh, can play direct over the top into the channels, which is a thing that they will do from time to time, but can also facilitate a attacking play, especially around the top of the box, moving the ball from left to right, she'll hit some big switches, not as inclined to shoot, but can when she wants to. Most of the shooting will be done, I think, or at least some of the shooting will be done by Pernille Harder, uh, the former most expensive player in the world. She is 30 years old, third most caps on the team at 141. Uh, still a lot of caps. Uh, the top scorer all time, three seasons with Chelsea, but is moving to Bayern Munich uh, after the World Cup, along with her partner Magdalena Eriksson, uh, who is Swedish. So there's a Swedish-Denmark rivalry there in that relationship. She can play a number of positions for this Danish team. Harder can. Uh, she has played as the number nine. She's played uh, out wide on both sides, and she's played as more of a creative attacking midfielder. That is where I expect her to be in this World Cup. Again, she might start as the number nine, but I would expect her to be one of the midfield three, maybe alongside Holmgaard and Katrine Kuhl, a 20-year-old midfielder for Arsenal, who is very technical, has a very good touch, can be a little bit slow in her decision-making. I saw her... Uh, fail to pull the trigger a couple times and scuff a few chances in front of goal. A little bit like Jean-Luc Abusio, Joe, that we were talking about earlier, but better. But better is uh, Katrine uh, Kuehl. And then there's one more player that I'm going to talk about when it comes to very specific predictions, but I'll talk about a bit now. Signa Brun is the player that I think is most likely to be that number nine if it's not Pernille Harder. And she is very, very good. Uh, she makes very smart runs. She will drop in to link up play, but then peels off and makes smart sort of late arriving runs into the box. Gets, gets into the box very often, gets on the end of crosses, and has a lot of Muller Hello press Gutentag moments. Uh, for those who are not longtime listeners of the Total Soccer Show, those are moments in which uh, Thomas Muller made this famous in my mind, and then Kristen Press uh, did it as well. Just popping up in moments where you don't expect them to be, to score tap-ins or be there when the ball sort of trickles through and they're somehow wide open at the back post, or they've made a near-post run that nobody else saw and they're there just to poke it home. Uh, that is something that Signa Brun is very, 
good at doing. She led the team uh, in goals and qualifying and continues to be a very strong goal scorer for them. Uh, so I'll talk more about her when it comes to specific predictions. But I think Brun is going to be a key player for this team, especially in the absence of Nadia Nadim and Stina Larsen, both out due to injury, both very capable players when it comes to the attack. But I still think Denmark have certainly more than enough to get out of this group. And I still think have uh, enough to make a pretty good run in this tournament. So those are some key players for Denmark and some key players that will be missing. Uh, Graham, we come to you for the detailed uh, player-by-player preview of China. Have at it. Okay, so I have to start with the two center forwards for China because if they are to have a good World Cup, it will be because Wang Shanshan and Wang Shuan have recaptured the form that they had at the Asian Cup last year when they scored a combined 10 goals. And watching Gus those and games Joe back, just nodding along aggressively. I think we all were thinking the same thing. I think yeah. me and Joe sort of came <laughs> into off, that Graham. thinking the same thing. So one, one of those players will be familiar to um, NWSL fans, of course. Shuang plays for Racing Louisville. Back in 2019, she did a, a video and an article for the Players' Tribune, which I read. And she certainly didn't have it easy growing up. So she was abandoned by her parents when she was just five years old. She grew up with relatives instead. And then even when she got into football as a teenager, um, her Player Tribute, Players' Tribune article was about the culture in Chinese football of being of, of being told numerous times she wasn't good enough and, and almost being bullied by coaches and, and told to give up. My reading of this was that um it, it's that, that that attitude, excuse me, is quite common in Chinese sports. So Olympic athletes face the same sort of thing from a young age. That seems like not a healthy environment to be in. So between her childhood and then her um, the way that she was brought up as a player, she's done well to get to this level. Shuan is, is an all-round forward, so she can dribble past a defender. She likes to start out in wide areas to create space for herself to carry the ball inside. She can create, she can finish. There's a lot to like about her game. And then you have the more experienced uh, Wang Shanshan as the, as the strike partner, and Shanshan is a foil. So she is the target striker. She's the physical presence. She's the one who allows China to play the long ball. And it's often Shuan who benefits as the second striker, who will capitalize on the, on the flick-ons. I said that it's quite a rudimentary approach from China. They will play goal kicks high in the air. They then get the, the flick-on from Shanshan, and uh, Shuan is the one that, that will often benefit from that. There, there's a chance that Shuan will actually be on the wing on paper, but the partnership, when I went back and watched those Asian Cup games, the partnership between her and Shan Shan is, is really clear. They kind of bounce off each other. And I expect that we will see that at this World Cup again. Uh, Tang, Tang Zhuali is another t- attacker who can be a bit of a difference maker for China in that attacking third. And then if we go into midfield, Yao Lingui will be the anchor in that midfield unit. She acts as the screen in front of the back four. She's the one who breaks down opposition attacks. And given the way that China play out of possession, that makes her very important to the team as a whole. Even when she's not engaging in a tackle or an interception or whatever, she is the one that's keeping that structure together in front of the defence. Also in the midfield unit will be Zhang Rui. Um, China don't commit huge numbers forward in the attack, but Zhang is the one in that midfield who will have freedom to join in when she can get forward. Uh, Li Wang Wen will be the starting right back for China. She is currently playing at high level in the club game for PSG, so she's got real pedigree. She's got pace, a very direct runner. So in a team that doesn't play with a lot of width, those are pretty important qualities for a right back to have. She has a bit of a funnel into the attack. And then in central defence, we have Louis Zhuangui, 
um, will be the dominant defensive presence in this team. She's 32 years old. She has over 100 caps for the national team. She is the organizer at the back. She's the one that's repelling crosses and staying compact. Um, although the way that China play, it's all on the back line to perform that job. But nonetheless, she is a bit of a leader in that in that pack. All of China's big players are included in this squad. There is a, a question mark over the fitness of, of Lee, the, the right back. But it seems like she will be okay and she will feature at this tournament. This is a squad that has a good blend. They have some experience. They have players playing at a high level, high level in the NWSL and in Europe. And they also have some youth. And 14 of their 23 women's squad for this World Cup are at their, their first tournament. So I like that aspect of, of their roster. There is a good balance. And in terms of individual talent, they... Um, they have some to keep an eye on. Uh, Graham, a few things for me. Uh, you talking about Wang Shenshan reminded that was like a familiar name and I couldn't remember why. I, I looked up on the Google Drive. I previewed China for the 2019 Women's there World Cup, uh, and I had her as the battering ram of China's yeah, attack. That's her job. Uh, yeah. to, to Wang Shuang's uh, creative attacking play, more likely to be the goal scorer. So we agree on that one. I thought you'd also like to know that my nickname for them then was the Enigmas because they have lots of changes. I'm unsure of the quality due to their domestic league, and I'm sure of their roster because at the time they hadn't released an official roster like two weeks before the tournament i think uh so it feels like there are still maybe some inconsistencies yeah. to this uh chinese national team overall you could have just passed me those notes taylor that would have saved <laughs> me a lot of time uh what i am shocked by and i did write this down so you all can see it uh that says inside 15 minutes graham mentioned celtic graham you did not mention the celtic Damn. player that plays for china <laughs> and i am shocked by this this is maybe the most shocking moment of all of these previews uh but it's a credit to you that you showed the restraint i feel like you just didn't want to be a caricature of yourself but shen uh meng Yu, uh meng Yu, uh starts or plays for celtic i don't know if she starts for celtic but i assume there would be that connection there for you i know joe wouldn't have missed an opportunity to talk about arizona no not at all <laughs> never graham, never graham's gotta does. step it up I, I guess graham wanted to keep it quiet everybody he knows yeah. that he's a Celtic fan, of but course, he just wants course. to sort of let that be a little bit more low-key. Graham, I respect that about you. That's his is, favorite that's team. That's just how rumors start. Oh, that's sorry, it was Rangers. 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 Sorry, it's, he love he loves Rangers and Celtic equally, but Rangers just a little bit more. That's and it. then yeah, it's a huge it. gap to any other teams. I yeah. think it's Aberdeen third in that one, <laughs> right? Mm. Yeah, all mm -hmm. the Scottish teams. Yeah, that I'm, okay. I'm a fan of all the Scottish teams. Yeah, <laughs> he's, okay. he's Rob Lowe, fan of the league. That's right. I think it's the exactly. life. I think it's weird that Alex McLeish is your famous Scottish favorite Scottish manager as well. That's that's a bold mm. shot from Graham. I'm just gonna make he is turning Graham is holding his a darker shade of purple than the <laughs> I don't expect this when Ryan's not on the show. This right. is this I'm is sorry. Ryan's thing. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, I'll stop and I'll instead turn it to Joe uh, to tell us about Haiti's key players. Joe, uh, if you drop the ball here the way Graham did in mentioning Celtic, my, my my favorite player in the world, sister, is on this team, and if and if that's not mentioned, we're gonna have to fight. So Taylor, I all, I almost <laughs> included Etienne in the key players um, relation to the Etienne family that somehow yes. is a connection to soccer in Virginia. I don't remember all the details, but Taylor knows the Etienne family and has love for them, and there is an Etienne in this squad. Danny Etienne from Richmond, Virginia, baby. That's right. That's there right. There it is. Glad, glad we got that one out there. No Arizona Thank connections, you. but I'm happy that you were you were satisfied. Um, Melchie Dumornay, that I can mentioned earlier, uh, about half of the roster for Haiti currently apply their trade in France, and, and Dumornay is one of those players. Just 19 years old, plays for Reims in France, uh, but is headed to Lyon ahead of this next season. If if that doesn't tell you like about her quality, I, there aren't many other things that can. Lyon, along with Barcelona, are the two most consistent dominant forces in women's club soccer, certainly on the European side. 
and signing for one of those clubs is a sign that you have made it as a professional soccer player. And Dumournay has done that and more, even just at 19. She scored twice, both goals in that 2-1 win over Chile that got them to the World Cup. That gave them one of the last three spots that was left. Haiti snagged that, and Dumournay was a big part of that. She'll be the second forward, number 10 type of player underneath a striker for Haiti. She was a part of Haiti's U-20 team that qualified for the 2018 World Cup, and that was a big deal. She was the best player on that team at just 15 years old. Like She has been a level above at every single level, and that does include now the top level, the professional level, the senior level. She is a fully-fledged professional star, 11 goals, 5 assists last year in France. Again, I mentioned headed to Lyon. In terms of the scouting report, I mentioned that she sauced up the U.S. at the CONCACAFW Championship, which was very true. Like The U.S. had a really hard time dealing with her combination of speed and acceleration and technical ability. She's only five foot three, but she is dynamic and fearless going into every single moment. She kind of looks like she's always being shot out of a cannon. Like she plays so quickly and, and being able to play quickly is the biggest difference between any of us and a pro soccer player, right? Like you go and play pickup with good people and they're passing the ball faster than you can figure out what's happening. Dumornay is that, but relative to other professional soccer players. Like she is so quick all the time. She kind of looks like she's being shot out of a cannon when she plays, but she's also still in perfect control. And I don't know, my brain can't figure out how you do that. Maybe she's the air surrounding the cannonball as it's shot out of the cannon. I don't know what's going on, but she has control and she has speed and they're perfectly blended together. She is a true attacking star, excuse me, and is lethal both starting and finishing counterattacks, can pop up and create a little bit in possession as well, even though Haiti will almost never be in those kinds of moments. She's somebody to watch, and for every World Cup preview we do down the line, she's going to be the first name on the team sheet for Haiti as long as she is playing. So Dumourne is certainly someone to watch, is in position to be a genuine star at this competition. Another player that's worth watching, another attacker, uh, Nerelia Mondesir, 24-year-old forward. She is the captain for this Haiti team. She helped start uh, this sort of Haitians to France trend when she moved to Montpellier in 2017. And her nickname is Nerigol, which is epic, right? And so that gives you a little bit about how she wants to play. She can play through the, the middle. She can be on the wings. I think we're likely to see a little bit of both, maybe a little more out wide in this competition. She sees space well in the box, moves well off the ball, good right foot, can score with her head too. She is not nearly a Dumornay level player, but she can be successful and can have some real edge to her on the break. Uh, one other player that I wanted to mention Shirley Judy, 24-year-old midfielder, plays for uh, Delapine in France at club level. So she she gets Delapine on both sides, both for club and country. She can play a few passes, has a really good right foot, good from set pieces. If Haiti are going to score a goal, it's likely to either be through Dumornay uh, or from a dead ball. And, and Judy does have some nice service and nice execution in set piece moments. Not always the cleanest in open play, but effective when she has time and space. Uh, can clean up plays, good range, can cover some ground, can start counterattacks. She's somebody to watch. One concern for me, like outside of my concern for most players that aren't Dumornay in this squad, is they don't have a goalkeeper playing at the pro level. Like we're, we're talking college, we're talking youth academy, stuff like that. That's a real concern. Goalkeepers don't often get talked about as much because they're not as fun, and they're kind of playing their own sport while the rest of the players on the field are playing soccer. But, I mean, Haiti don't don't have a, a professional goalkeeper. They try not to ask too much of their back four and their, their goalkeeper, but I'm very much concerned about their ability to hold up in that part of the field. They will be put under a lot of pressure, and all of those outfield players are going to have to work really hard 
if they're not disciplined, even for a second, and we saw this from Wales against the U.S. yesterday, like Wales had put in a pretty good shift, and all of a sudden, you've got runners running in behind in Sophia Smith and Trinity Rodman. For Haiti, it's going to be, you know, England superstars. Like that's, that's when you break, and I'm afraid Haiti, with their lack of talent in the back, is, is going to be in a few too many of those spots. All right. Uh, Joe, thank you for doing the legwork there because it is really tricky, especially this is like the laziest way to explain it. But when the team has a ton of red links on the Wikipedia page, it's always a sign <laughs> that you're going to have to do that extra level of research. Yeah, you have to go uh, to the dart web. For, yeah, like, exactly. And Haiti, Haiti have that for players and some of the clubs that they play for. I just, I just uh, asked ChatGPT. I don't know what you guys did for your previews. This, I don't, this took me like 10 seconds. I don't know what the deal is. Graham, when you were like, reports are that the right back could be healthy, I was like, who? Where is Graham reading this stuff? <laughs> On Not Weibo? Way, yeah. Graham, Graham, Graham has three of the four walls in his office, just like with different screens that are telling him different information at a different time. And then he floats in a pool similar to Minority Report and just receives all the information. He processes it all well. That is Graham's entire setup. Goss, I hope you can uh, follow up, live up to that when it comes to talking about England's key players. So I'm going to do this in reverse because I think I have to, which is I'm going to start with omissions and injuries, and mm. then I'm going to go to key players because I think for many people in Obviously, Graham, you can step in whenever because I know this is your team, really, as well. Yes. Oh, let's make that clear. England is Graham's favorite team. I was going to say the most insulting thing that anyone has ever said to me on this show. England. That was more a reference to Joe asking you the questions and you stealing my thunder. Um, So for England, four of the starters that started the Euro final a year ago are not going to be available for this tournament. You start with Leah Williamson, 26-year-old center back, captain of this team. And I'll talk about the cascading effect, center back or potentially center mid. Uh, She is out of this tournament. The Arsenal starter has an ACL injury. Beth Mead, who was the golden boot and player of the tournament winner at the Euros with six goals and four assists, also an Arsenal player, uh, tore her ACL as well. She is out for this tournament. And then Fran Kirby, who I think we mentioned uh, who had two game-winning goals at the Euros as well. She's Chelsea's all-time leading scorer. She was on the Ballon d'Or shortlist the last two years in the PFA Player of the Year. She is out with an injury for this tournament. And since the Euros ended, Ellen White, the all-time leading scorer in England history, has retired from the England national team. And then Jill Scott as well, who had been rotated out as a starter. So that's where you have to start when you're talking about this England team because they still have a bunch of stars in there. There's still a ton of talent but it all is question marks of who will fill where and where you'll see them. So the, the most obvious one to bring up is to start with, I think, is Ella Toon, who came off the bench as a sub every single game at the Euros and was a star and basically was the 12th starter. She will step into midfield in place of Beth Mead. That gives them a star attacker that's equal to that level. But that cascade effect is now you shorten the bench a little bit. So the midfield three will, instead of being... Mead, Stanway, and Walsh will be tuned Stanway and Walsh because Georgia Stanway uh, had the game winner against Spain in the Euro semifinal, moved to Bayern this season, incredible year, won the Bundesliga, and then Kira Walsh is going to be the starting center mid. She is the most expensive player in women's football history, uh, $400,000 transfer fee from Barcelona, which doesn't sound like much, but it broke the record of 50000 So For that, Barcelona, any amount of money sounds like a lot. That's fair. fair. So if you think about that increase from fifty to four hundred thousand, it shows you the type of player she is. She dictates the game. She's elite. When you talk about building out as well as shutting down attacks for the other team, she was voted man of the match of the Euro final 
um, or I guess woman of the match, player of the match, that probably would have worked out better, of the European Championship last year. That's your midfield three. That's the strength of the team, even without Kirby. That's still the strength of this team. Mary Earps in goal was voted goalkeeper of the year by FIFA in 2022. And then along the back line, you still have elite talent. Lucy Bronze, starting right back, Ballon d'Or winner in 2019. Doesn't put up huge stats with Barcelona, but has been every part of what Joe has mentioned is the elite team in the world. Um, she will continue to get forward. She will continue to be a major part of the attack. And then you've got some moving pieces around everything else. So Millie Bright will start at center back like she did last year. She will now be the captain of this team at the back and a lot of responsibility will fall on her. And then it's a question mark of, well, Alex Greenwood, who we thought would start at left back, move from left back to left center back. And that would open up space for Jess Carter to start at left back. But then against Portugal, uh, Wiegmann started Jess Carter at left center back and played William, played Greenwood at left back. So there's a lot of different options of how this could move around. And of course, Rachel Daly could also play in that role, who will battle it out, as we said, with Russo. And then the wide spots are really the open spots on this team. Chloe Kelly came off the bench, won the European Championships. Not a great season in league play, but is one of the rare experienced players. Lauren Hemp was a starter in the Euro final as well. The assumption is she'll start again as their sort of 1v1 option who can beat players off the dribble. And then Lauren James trying to work her way into the starting lineup. Another really good 1v1 attacker that could enter this team in this opportunity. It's really interesting sort of like reading English perceptions of this team, which is as young as some of these pieces are, it almost feels like this is the end of this generation. And this could be a once-off opportunity to win a World Cup for a lot of these players. Like Keir Walsh will obviously be at another World Cup but it doesn't feel like the next generation coming up is going to be as strong as the one that's leaving. So this might be a last opportunity with Emily Bright or Rachel Daly or Lucy Bronze to get a win, which I think has put pressure on this team. Man. All right. So lots of pressure on England, lots of pressure on the individual players, lots of pressure on Serena Wiegmann, lots of pressure on David Goss to get everything right or else Graham is going to let him hear about it. Uh, gentlemen, we are almost done, but we have some specific predicting to do. I have two. One is more so a follow-up to uh, to something I meant to mention earlier, but I will make into a specific prediction. Uh, the first one is Yanni Thompson, uh, T-H-O-M-S-E-N. I believe she will play in at least three different positions at various points in this tournament. She can play on the right wing. She can play on the left wing. Left wing. She can play on the right side of that midfield three, then has played right fullback for them and has played right wing back for them. So I think based on the formation and approach, she may pop up in different areas. Uh, I would guess that she starts at right wing uh, in the in the opener. We shall see, but I think she'll play all over the place. And then the other prediction I have uh, relates to Signa Brun, the player who I think will start at the number nine spot. I think she will either score from a header inside 12 yards or a tap in from inside the six or both. Uh, I think she will score goals in this tournament. Uh, I think they're going to be playing against some bunkered teams at times in the group stage. And I think she is going to be critical in uh, basically popping up and making something happen. When there's a shot that's saved and spilled, she'll be there to tap at home. If there's a deflection off a defender, she'll be there to capitalize. She crashes the box really, really well. I noticed that time and time again in some of the goals she scores that are tap-ins. You know, a tap-in, it's a tap-in, but also you have to be in the right spot. 
And at least a few of them were teammates shooting from 20, 25, 30 yards out and hitting the post or the goalkeeper making a sprawling save. And then Brune being there to tap it in, but timing her run such that she is onside, but also the first to react to things. So I think she'll get a tap in. And if she doesn't, I think she'll get a header because she's very good at attacking space about... Uh, sort of dropping in, linking play, and then making that run. And then basically because she is moving into the attacking position, she can evaluate and spot the moments or the opportunities where there is a little bit of space in the box. Uh, very good back to goal, but I think very good in the air and very good at just finding those little moments. So I think she's going to get either a header from inside 12 yards, a tap in from inside six yards, or both. Those would be my two predictions for Denmark. Graham Ruffin, please give us one for China, if you would. So my VSP for China at this World Cup relates to uh, Wang Shuang because I'm really excited to, watch, to see what she could do at this tournament. I think she's so important to what China do and the way that they attack. So my VSP is that she will average more successful take-ons per match than any other Chinese player at this tournament. She's in the 99th percentile for successful take-ons. So I think there's a good chance this one comes through. Um, Lee at right back might be might provide some competition, um, given her importance to getting China out from the back and, and carrying the ball. But yeah, my VSP is related to, to take-ins. More, um, just to clarify, more successful take-ons per match than any other Chinese player for Wang Shuang at this tournament. All right, uh, so we've got Denmark, China. Joe, give us Haiti. Yeah, I feel like I'm always the one who pushes the boundaries on what's allowed for VSPs. Although, <laughs> uh, Kenneth, who's doing a lot of faithful work in the Discord on, on tracking VSPs, I, I do want to clarify, I don't feel like Taylor should get both credit for both if he gets both right i think he has to pick one and, and you guys can sort of sort that out together i guess but i'll take i'll take i'll take the goals one there it I'll is always go. Joe, i know you... i snuck in two earlier on in this uh as well so i i'm i'm a, 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 what's the word i'm a criminal here that feels extreme that feels very extreme well no, it goes hypocrite, Joe, hypocrite is what you're looking for you guys all jumped in so fast it goes that. to my main <laughs> question joe which is your your vsp <laughs> lawyer you have that on retainer right yes. so you don't have to pay per case yeah yeah that's okay. correct that's correct um my actual vsp <laughs> Just one of them is about Melchie Dumornay because I cannot stress enough that she is the reason to watch Haiti outside of, you know, some goals that, that could be coming in at both ends. She's going to make at least one opposing center back look really, really silly. And I, I that's the part that's a little bit iffy. I don't know how we're going to define silly. My thought is we'll all know it when we see it. And if we're all sort of comfortable with that as the language surrounding this VSP, I think it's going to work well. I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to be. I hope it's in the first game against England, but that's just me. Like she is going to spin somebody or she's going to drive past somebody like after Jerome fainting Bolton, the other way. Ankle breaker. Yeah. It's going to be something like that. If it's even approaching that, I think it's going to go viral. First of all, on social media, and we're going to have a ton of fun with it on the show. And I will be collecting my point for this VSP. Joe's planning to collect points and does have his lawyer on retainer. I'm a little bit nervous about that. Uh, David Goss, while I ponder what that could mean, uh, why don't you give us yours? So mine, I think, is a little bit obvious, but I'm going to try and pitch why it's a little bit more dangerous. Um, I'm going to say that Kira Walsh is going to lead the tournament in progressive passes. She led the European Championships in that category, England, over the last two tournaments. They've had a player high on that list. She is the elite center mid at building out of the back. And I think England, with their losses, are going to play through her even more. Why I think it's bold is I'm going total number, not average per game. England will most likely play Australia or Canada in the round of 16. I think does most people here feel like they'll win this group? 
Yes. Yeah, I think so. Right. So they'll play the winner or runner up of Group B, which we've already previewed. And so if they have to play Australia hosts or Canada, I think there's a decent chance they could only play four games at this tournament. And so I still think with the four games only played potentially, that Walsh will put up such huge numbers and England's style is so specific, especially with teams I think going to drop off in this group, that her total numbers will still lead the tournament even if they get knocked out early. They have a really tough road. I think I was a little bit negative about them. It's hard because you just have so many injuries from a team that we were so high on. I wouldn't be shocked if England won this tournament. Like There is still that much talent in this group. You are talking about players who start at Man U, Lyon, Barcelona, Bayern Munich that are replacing almost every piece that got hurt. And so you, when we talk about a lot of these other national teams, if you had a Chelsea starter, you'd start the star list with them. And this is a team that will bring players like that in off the bench to start. So I wouldn't be shocked if England won this thing. I think there's a possibility they go out early, and I still think Walsh will put up that number. Wow. All right. So we've got our predictions. We've got our previews. I'm going to say Group D in the books. Gentlemen, that leaves many more groups still to go. Uh, but lovely work so far. Graham Ruffin. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, lovely work so far. Ryan Bailey, David Goss. Thank you. <laughs> what, Ryan, you're here. I, where have you been? If you'd said like Wimbledon with that voice, it would have been did you, really dead Wait, on. did you hear the Swiderski goal call in Charlotte? Yes. <laughs> when, he, when he became Mickey Mouse? Mickey Mouse. Yeah. It's pretty Ryan Bailey-esque, and it's in Charlotte. Is that where he is? Uh, yeah, it could be. It could just be like stuck in the stadium, unable to get out. You never know with Ryan. Uh, and Joe Lowry, who is not stuck at a stadium and has never been accused of being Mickey Mouse that I know of. Guys, I've, I've had you. like such a royally good time on this show. <laughs> it's, it's been a lot of fun. It has been. <laughs> That's good stuff. Joe, <sighs> listeners, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with Group E tomorrow. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.